Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 34th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is an accessible guide to being smart about IQ. With me is Dr. Russell T. Warney, the author of In the Know, Debunking 35 Myths About Human Intelligence. The publisher is Cambridge University Press. Russell is an associate professor of psychology at Utah Valley University. He earned his PhD in education psychology from Texas A&M University in 2011. Dr. Warney has published two books and nearly 60 scholarly articles. He teaches classes on statistics, psychology, research methods, psychological testing, and intelligence. Welcome to the show, Russell. Thanks, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Great. So let's just uh, level set. What is this book about in a nutshell? Well, in a nutshell, um, the title says it all. It's talking about 35 different myths that people believe about human intelligence and setting the record straight to say, here's what the research says about those. And um, here's where a lot of people in the media and sometimes even within psychology are, are sometimes mistaken. Okay. Now, when we had our preliminary conversation, you mentioned you've been in this field 10 years. You've dedicated a whole decade of your life and probably more to come on this topic. I'm I'm curious, what got you interested in this? I got sucked into this, actually. I didn't... I didn't set out to become a psychologist who studies intelligence. Um, I was interested in educational psychology, and that's the graduate program I went into uh, with a specialty in quantitative psychology, which is the science of gathering and analyzing data about people. And in that um, in that process, I had to take a class called Intelligence, Creativity, and Giftedness. And my graduate school professor uh, had us reading about intelligence, about IQ, and I said, "Hey, wait a minute! There's there's something here that's that's worth talking about." And I kept reading more and a little more, and um, started publishing um, applied research. And um, then, much to my surprise, I I kept finding more questions to answer, more research to do, more stuff to read, and before you knew it, I had spent a decade. <laughs> <laughs> on it. Interesting. So, so I have to ask you, I think this book, you know, took a fair measure of courage. And I say that because every one of these 35 myths that you're busting means someone's fingerprints are on them, often more than one person. So you are, you know, daring to take on the role of a contrarian to push back and, and push away in many cases, uh, these theories. So, uh, any comments you might want to offer about, uh, uh, I guess I'll call it the courage, the guts to to take all of this on. Uh, it, it, I haven't really thought of it that way. I don't see myself as being courageous. If anything, I'm that really unpopular person at a party who says, uh, oh, actually, 
I didn't see myself as a courageous person writing it. Actually, I saw myself more as an annoying gadfly. <laughs> um, I hope that does that's not the impression or the tone it gives in the book, but there is a lot of of like you said fingerprints about these myths, these popular ideas. And some of them are strongly ingrained in our culture. Some of them are taught in schools of education, like where I got my PhD. And um, I do expect some pushback. I've seen a little bit of it now, actually less than I expected. And I do expect that most readers will, will find a chapter or two where they say, ooh, I, I didn't realize that was wrong. And where maybe they're, they're a little more... Um, they're a little more strict about um, the arguments I bring and the quality of evidence. Maybe they evaluate me a little more toughly because they don't think I'm wrong. And, and I welcome that scrutiny. Well, I, I think there's, there's guts, for instance, in saying, you know, Mother Nature is not an egalitarian force, uh, that you are in the education field and you take on Carol Dweck's writings on fixed and growth mindset because, as you noted, uh, it's widely, you know, cited in the education field. In fact, since we first got into contact, a friend of mine applauded me for making some changes to my tennis game and said, oh, it's evidence of a growth mindset. <laughs> and so uh, th that's why I brought in the comment. Yeah, there are certain ideas and, and things that I call myths that you can really point to one specific person who either created the idea or greatly popularized it. But the vast majority of them are just sort of the the popular cultural flotsam and jetsam that that were that's floating all around us um and those are the ones that i actually expect more more pushback about okay well we're going to get into some of those more pushback areas i'm sure one thing i, I just wanted to to take on it would be you know for any lay person the easiest way to start to look at iq which is the old question of the nature versus nurture debate and as I read through the book, I kept circling every time I could see some sort of possible, you know, assignment as to which side was winning and by how much and so forth. So this all leads to gross simplifications. But I want to bring up a couple of the ways in which you quantified it or described it and then let you kind of set the record straight as you'd like to. So at one point, you mentioned that heritability is maybe about 50 percent just to, you know, you, you cited 0.50 um, I'm not really a statistics guy, but uh, I'll put it out that way. Uh, another point, you say adults in positive environments, industrialized countries, about 0 0.80. Uh, you mentioned the combined influence of all genes on intelligence variability uh, in a range from 20 to 80 percent at another point in the book. Uh, high heritability for adults in wealthy countries over 0 0.50, but 0 0.40 and less developed. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not trying to accuse you of inconsistency. Uh, you've got different ways in which you're, you're framing this, but how can you kind of bring this together and maybe give us a, a rule of thumb that would help people get a grasp on this, this ancient uh, nature versus nurture <laughs> issue? No, you're, you're right that I really don't want to nail myself down to one number. And some of that's just the nature of the heritability statistic. Heritability is a measure of how much or what percentage of the differences in a trait that can be attributed to differences in genes. And so, um, and this isn't just intelligence, we do it. And we can do heritability of depression, we can do heritability of yep. height, weight, personality uh, traits, yep. Yeah, personality traits, um, heart disease. 
uh, people have been doing heritability studies now since the 1920s. And actually, IQ is one of the first traits that had a heritability study. Um, so this is a long history. And yes, the numbers do dance around, but one of the reasons is because heritability is context-specific. A heritability number only applies to that population under the environmental conditions it's experiencing. And one of the big um, influences on heritability values, we call it a moderator, is simply the subject's age, how old people are. And young children, um, the age of my kids, about four or five, six years old, heritability is only about, for IQ is only about 20%. In young children, who's smarter than, than who else is overwhelmingly environmental in origin. Um, it's overwhelmingly due to the environment the parents create. But then as people age, heritability goes down. And by adolescence, it's about 50% in wealthy countries. And by midlife, old age, it's it's about 70 to 80 percent. There's some studies that say it's higher than 80 percent. I'm not sure I trust those for boring methodological reasons that are too detailed for here. Um, but the reason why, yeah, there is a range is because it depends on the population. Are you studying children or adults? It depends on where you do these studies. Most of them occur in wealthy, industrialized countries, although I do cite a couple from sub-Saharan Africa in the book. And so um, if it sounds like I'm wishy-washy, a little contradictory, it's because just the very idea of applying one heritability value to a trait that always applies to everybody all the time just doesn't make sense anyway. Oh, no, and, and that's perfectly fine. I, I was not, in fact, accusing you of uh, being being inconsistent. I just – there was a lot of different contexts, and uh, I think it's natural for listeners to be curious whether there was a, a resolution to that issue. But I, I love the – you know, the uh, – points you made about it changing, you know, during the course of one's life and uh, where it moves from childhood onward. You, you mentioned something called the, the Flynn effect uh, from James Flynn, and it has to do about uh, possible increases in IQ scores. Uh, I, I put this in a, in a context that you mentioned, for instance, uh, adults who have over the age of 25 who have uh, graduated from college. Uh, back when my parents went to college, uh, about 8% of Americans had a bachelor's degree. By the time I graduated from college in 1980, roughly speaking, it was double that or more, up to about 18%. It's now doubled again to 34%. So, you know, I've read the book, but for the listener, what what is the Flynn effect and what are we possibly talking about in terms of measuring IQ and any possible changes over generations? The Flynn effect, uh, named after James Flynn, as he said, who actually passed away just last Friday, um, um, Flynn never said he discovered it, and um, and Flynn never named it after himself. That's an interesting story in of itself. But it's named after him because he published two articles in the 1980s showing that average IQ had increased over time, over the course of, of decades. That about, depending on which test you give, for every 10 years that had passed, the average would go up about three to five points, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it really is. To to use the example you do of comparing yourself with your grandparents, if your grandparents were born about six decades before you, we're saying about 18 to 30 points 
on average, your grandparents' generation would score lower than you. And 30 points below average is approximately the borderline for having intellectual disability. Um, 18 points below average is, is in the bottom about 20% of people. And so you'd be saying that the average person from your grandparents' generation would score between the average for someone with Down syndrome and somewhere in the bottom 20%. I mean, th that's extremely hard to believe that that reflects a real difference in brain power. Yeah. Um, you know, your, your grandparents graduated from college, even if, if um, someone's grandparents didn't, like um, most of mine didn't. Um, they still raised the family. They still put food on the table. They still learn how function. to die. Yeah. yeah, they could obviously function. And if you extrapolate it back further, um, then you start creating really silly ideas. Like the majority of people 250 years ago at the period of the American Revolution would have such low IQ that they wouldn't be able to learn language or go to the bathroom by themselves. Uh, clearly, that wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> I think that someone would have noticed that and it would have come down in the historical record. Yeah. I've read a lot of Ben Franklin's writings. I don't notice a moron. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's not saying that everyone around him is crapping themselves all the time. Um, and so clearly this is not a real increase in, in brain power, but it is an increase in the scores. And you pointed out one of the causes of this, um, almost certainly higher education, more education, better quality education is part of that. And um, it's not saying that we are so much more intelligent than our grandparents, but we have been better trained by our environment to solve abstract analytical problems that don't need a lot of context, which is exactly what we see on most intelligence tests. Okay. So I, I want to stay with this whole question about progress or lack of progress and what we can trust as numbers. There was, you know, one of your points that you make in the book is, you know, we do need to go back to what are the physical properties of the brain. You mentioned lead poisoning as, as one of those things that can limit one's ability. But just in passing, you had a couple of footnotes that referenced that human brains are smaller today than they were 100,000 years ago and about the size of the typical Neanderthal brain. I was pretty fascinated by that. Why is it that the, the brain is now smaller than it was? was? Do they have an answer to that? Um, that's an evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology question. There are some theories about it. I'm not sure how convincing a lot of them are because um, we can't go back in time and yeah. examine what environmental pressures led to the selection of different um, characteristics in, in humans. Uh, we don't have a time machine. So a lot of these evolutionary theories are a little difficult to, to test. Um, but it is a worldwide phenomenon that generally brains have gotten smaller over the past hundred thousand years. Uh, I'm not sure how convincing any of the theories are about that. So I'm not going to stick my neck out and marry myself to one. <laughs> Okay, that that's fair enough. It just it was just a little detail, and I said a couple of footnotes. I went, that's really a curious, you know, factoid, and I couldn't resist asking. Let, let's go to something much more contemporary. You offer a critique essentially of the No Child Left Behind Act, and you mentioned something called the Project One uh, Hundred Thousand regarding the Vietnam War. I, I won't uh, elaborate my my question. I'll just let you establish context and talk about what was your your uh, points on both of those matters. 
Well, no child left behind. And, and this, I grew up, quote unquote, in educational psychology during the no child left behind era. I started, um, I started graduate school more or less at the halfway point of the law's life and graduated about three years, um, actually about five years before it was repealed. And, and so that very much defined educational psychology in that era. And the law mandated that every single child in public schools in the United States be proficient in language arts, science, and mathematics by the year 2014. And I remember my first year in graduate school, my professor saying really offhand, oh, that's just not possible. And I asked why, and this was just common knowledge in a school of ed. They said, there's always going to be someone who struggles. You know, there's just some kids who have difficulty yeah. mastering material. It's a pipe dream to say that 100% of them are going to, to be proficient and at grade level. And sure enough, about three years before the law expires, the Obama administration starts offering states waivers in exchange for making educational reforms that they wanted where we won't enforce the law for your state if you'll do these other things for us and we'll allow you to have some kids not being proficient. And it, that was zero surprise to educational psychologists. They knew that, that the law just would not, would not work. And I say in the book, you might as well try to outlaw gravity. Yeah, I thought that was a very funny comment, actually. Yeah. Um, as far as Project 100,000, um, this was, like you said, during the Vietnam War. Uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara is running a little low on manpower. And unsurprisingly, young people are not signing up for an unpopular war. And he needed to find more people. And one option was to remove the exemption from the draft for people attending college. Well, this did not pull well with college students or with their middle and upper class parents. And so um, they knew they couldn't do that. So what McNamara did was overnight, he decides, you know what? A lot of people who before weren't eligible for the draft now are. And he adjusted a few of the requirements, but the most important one was he lowered the military's minimum IQ to be admitted to the um to be drafted from about 90 or so to about 72. And again, 70 is more or less the, the borderline for having intellectual disability. Basically, McNamara said, if you don't have an intellectual disability, you're smart enough to be in the army. And he, he was a, a social scientist actually um, by training. And he thought that, um, you know, a lot of these people have difficulty holding a job. A lot of them come from, um, backwoods areas from um, less educated communities. We'll train them. We'll make them better citizens. And after the war, if they survive, uh, they'll enter the workforce and be better off than they ever would have. And that's just not how it turned out. Um, the these soldiers were uh, the majority of them were dishonorably discharged, which you know over half. That that's an incredibly high rate of dishonorable discharge. Yeah. Uh, they died at three times the rate of, of other soldiers. They had about 10 times the rate of psychiatric needs. Um, some of them accidentally killed themselves or their comrades. 
Um, and it was an experiment of ignoring the importance of IQ that just did not work. And there were, until uh, McNamara died, and I believe it was the 90s, um, there were a lot of people and family members of soldiers who never belonged in the, who you know, never could, should have been there, who were very angry and bitter at him for um, inducting people who, who did not have the intellectual capacity to serve in the army and to do anything more than the most menial jobs of peeling potatoes or things like that. And it cost people their lives. Sure. Well, and I think that's one of the things that you take on in this book. I mean, it's uh, IQ has its advantages, it has its disadvantages, but you are concerned about looking out for everyone regardless of what their IQ level is. In fact, you talk later in the book about intellectual meritocracy, the risk that we are segregating as Americans into uh, spheres based on, you know, colleagues who have similar IQ levels. Uh, do you want to say a bit more about that? It really seems to me there's there's a, a moral imperative here. Uh, you're, you're certainly by no means being cheeky about the things that people have to encounter. Oh, oh I mean, you, there could be an entire book written just about the meritocracy and its positive and negative effects. I'm sure other people have, but the IQ meritocracy specifically. Uh, I will say yes. I... Um, I it was really hard to dip myself into social implications, but I felt like I had to because mm-hmm. intelligence relates to so much in, in people's lives that it's it's inevitably going to have some social and, and political connotations. But I'm not a very political person, and I'm not a policy expert, and so I feel like my best job and why I apply my research is to shut my mouth. <laughs> But I did stick my neck out on that part. And I feel like, uh, you know, we have this country where some people, because of low intelligence, um, can't live independently. Some people have been blessed beyond measure with very high reasoning ability. And I feel like we're all in this together and that um, there is an imperative to make sure that society functions well for everybody. And the bottom. 25, 40% of the population doesn't have a lobbyist group looking out for them. This is not a special interest group that is banded together and is pressuring Congress to make life easier for them. And so I feel like it's up to individual citizens and and individual lawmakers and policymakers to, at, at the very least, push pause on ideas and say, wait a minute, how will this affect the the cognitively disadvantaged? Because it, I, I would find it unethical and immoral to have another Project 100,000 in this country. Exactly. That's why I brought up that question and wanted to follow up on this one. Because I think that was one of the things that's very admirable about this book. So I, I'm, I'm actually standing behind my notion that you were courageous, even if you're being too nice to, to take that mantle. So let's go to another place because there there is a lot of of uh, baggage or issues that gets associated with IQ. So earlier when I mentioned nature versus nurture, well, lo and behold, that comes from Sir Francis Galton, who basically kicked off this field, who was a relative of Charles Darwin, who not only coined the term nature versus nurture, but also uh, the term eugenics, which has you know considerable baggage, but was once quite popular in the mainstream of uh, a lot of intellectual thought. So let's get into the question of differences. Uh, it doesn't turn to be, turn out to be a lot of differences in IQ regarding gender, but there is in regard to race with uh, uh, 
you know, East Asians doing particularly well um, and other groups not as well necessarily. So I don't know if I have a question to ask here, but this is such rich but fraught territory. I wonder what you'd like to, to say to listeners uh, regarding what is out there, that what knowledge is out there regarding those differences racially and what might be accounting for it and, and what this, you know, what we might learn along the way. Yeah, I will start with that piece and then I'll, I'll backtrack to what you said about the eugenics movement. Um, I think that successful policies and successful societal changes are most likely to occur when they're based on correct understanding of human nature and the world. And so it would have been really easy to just skip any mention of racial and ethnic differences and average IQ in the book. But I feel like ignoring that or, or, or lying about it or covering it up or sugarcoating it has caused problems. And again, I feel like we need a society where everyone's looked after. And, you know, if that requires understanding how these things are correlated with, with race and ethnicity, then we need to talk about it openly. Um, among large racial and ethnic groups, um, yes, uh, East Asians seem to have the highest average IQ, followed by Europeans followed by Hispanics, and then followed by people of African descent. Now, those are just averages. Yep. There's huge amounts of overlap among all these groups. And you can find individuals who belong to any of these groups at any level of intelligence. So, you know, there, there are probably literally millions of people in sub-Saharan Africa who are smarter than me. There have to be, just by the law of numbers, there have to be. And so please don't think I'm saying, oh, yeah, everyone from Group A is smarter than Group B. No, that's that's not how it works. Yep. Um, but there are differences, and it is a legitimate question to ask scientifically. Do these differences in the IQ score reflect differences in intelligence? Where do these differences come from? What can we do to ameliorate them? And, and that's the sort of issues I explore here. And um, I think that it's best to do that diplomatically and openly because if scientists don't talk about controversial issues, then extremists will fill the gap. And I don't want that. Um, extremists aren't interested in the truth. Scientists are. At least they should be. Uh, and so that, that's why I have those, those chapters. Now, as far as the, the eugenics movement goes, you're right. Um, Sir Francis Galton started the field of intelligence research. Um, he was the first one to attempt to measure intelligence. He didn't succeed, but he tried, and he kicked this field off in those attempts. And um, later, in a different um, body of work that does overlap with his intelligence work, he did suggest eugenics. Um, he noticed that we're the first species on this planet to ever know enough about evolution to start controlling it. And, and that was his goal in eugenics is um, control evolution so that the species can be improved. 
And um, this was a very popular idea. He, he was the Neil deGrasse Tyson or the Stephen Hawking of his day. He was one of the most famous scientists living at the time. And so it wasn't hard for his ideas to spread. And um, eugenics took on different forms in different countries. But what is common across all these countries is that Lo and behold, the most politically, socially powerful people decide that they're the ones with good genes and less powerful people don't have good genes. And so you get a lot of abuses in a lot of different countries, including forced sterilizations here in the U.S. Yeah. And you mentioned some of these in certain countries, including Scandinavia, went on for much longer than most of us would have imagined. Oh, yeah. Um, there's the idea that World War II happened. We saw the horrors of the Nazi concentration camps, which grew out of Nazi eugenics. And immediately eugenics became a dirty word. Everyone stopped this. That's not true. This country kept sterilizing people into the 1970s. Um, Japan didn't repeal its sterilization law until 1996. I mean, this lasted way longer than people think. And... Um, I talk about the truth about the eugenics movement um, and how it morphed into what we know today because it never fully went away. Um, although people don't use the word eugenics to describe things like genetic counseling, for example. And yeah. I talk about just the reality of, of intelligence research as history because they are, they are mixed together and you can't avoid that. And, and um, it's a disservice to try to hide that history. But that being said, um, most of the people in this field moved away from um, the compulsory um, uh, eugenics that took away people's rights but long before World War II ended, you know, a decade or more before World War II. And, um, and, and so I talk about the reality and how you know, that doesn't really affect much of that today. And to say that that the eugenics movement contaminates modern intelligence research, well, you can find all sorts of crazy things people believed in, in a field that aren't believed anymore. Pythagoras thought that when you passed the gas, it was your soul escaping from your body. So he thought you should, shouldn't eat beans. That doesn't make geometry full of freaks who are afraid of to pass gas. Sure. <laughs> no, no, point point well taken. Um, but it, yeah, it, when we get into all these discussions regarding race, for instance, you know, there there certainly has been some baggage in the field at times, but it doesn't preclude mm -hmm. its value, nor people pushing through to try to ascertain things that are solid and real. Speaking of that, and speaking of courage, I'm going to come back to it one last time, because lo and behold, yes, you're on a show called Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. And yet you do take on also the issue of EQ. Yep. And um, and so I, I congratulate you for that. And you might be surprised what I'll say in response in a moment. But I want you to, since you were in the, the field of myth busting here, what did you conclude about EQ? And then I'll, I might add a, a comment here before we end the show. Um, my conclusion about emotional intelligence or EQ is that a lot of people have oversold it. Um, I'm not going to go and say, oh, it's total garbage. You can ignore it. It's, it's not something real. No, th there's evidence that there's something useful in being able to manage one's own emotions, um, manage others' emotions, and be able to understand the emotional milieu of a group. Um, but there's, there's legitimate questions about whether this is part of personality or cognitive traits that we already know about. 
and how useful it is compared to other uh, other traits, um, including intelligence. And so my conclusion at the end of that chapter is, if we can build a strong bridge between the way people think and the way they feel and understand how those two relate, that could really revolutionize major pieces of psychology and other fields. We're not there yet to say that we have that and that we should start investing in emotional intelligence trainings for executives, for example. So that, that's my conclusion. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was very fair. I, in one of my books, uh, John Mayer, one of the founders of EQ, uh, endorsed the book, and we had uh, some conversations uh, through emails, and he was very appalled by uh, exaggerated claims as to what EQ could do. And what he provided me was was one touchstone that made a lot of sense since I have to be a, a tennis player, as I mentioned. The top 10 players in the world, male and female, over the last decade, some people might think they clobber their opponents. The truth of the matter is they win about 53% of the points. So they are dominant, but in a much narrower degree than we might imagine. So the efficacy of anything, uh, you know, you have to work really hard for it to be, you know, overwhelmingly uh, standout statistic. Um, and you have to talk about more realistic numbers. Uh, and to me, your, your point about, you know, if you take into account traits, uh, personality traits, the big five factor, if you take into account how we're going to use emotional intelligence, which is through our intelligence, uh, that these things you know can start to fade away a bit. That, that made total sense to me. Uh, I actually have no objections. You might have imagined that I was perhaps going to come after you tooth and nail, but uh, truth is I would not because I, I think you had a, a reasonable point of view there. And, and your your tennis example is great because in highly, highly competitive industries, I think of technology, um, you know, and, and industries with a very narrow profit margin, a small edge can really make you a major dominant leader in your industry. And so, yeah, emotional intelligence only increases the profit margin by half a percent. That might that might be revolutionary in your field. Go for it. Will it increase it? Will it be the, the factor to make your company the best in the world? No. Yeah, but every little thing, every little advantage, you know, exactly. could could weigh weigh exactly. in. So just before we close, and we've run a little bit longer than I sometimes do. I mean, you have thirty five myths in the book. Is there one that you would love to get around to uh, describing here that we didn't cover? Um. Oh gosh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, one that that a lot of people believe is that, oh, it's so hard to measure intelligence. And I just had a lot of fun writing chapter seven that addresses that myth, that actually it's so easy to measure intelligence that people have accidentally created an intelligence test without meaning to. And I, I just love that irony. So th that's what I'll leave you with. Okay, fair enough. So our time is indeed about up. This has been my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, uh, Russell T. Warney. This is episode 34, An Accessible Guide to Being Smart About IQ. His book is In the Know, Debunking 35 Myths About Human Intelligence. You can find more information about this episode by going to my latest blog posting at https forward slash emotions, plural, wizard.com. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. To check out other episodes, you can go to my company's website at the three W's, sensorylogic.com. 
Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. Since we've obviously been discussing intelligence today, I'm going to turn once again to Albert Einstein, who has a fun quote in this area. He said, it's not that I'm so smart, but I stay with the questions much longer. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Thank you.